All right, let's open up to 2 Samuel chapter 16 as we've been going through the Anchored series, the two-year uh, reading through the Bible. This week found us in 2 Samuel 16. At least, you know, I, I so enjoyed this reading. I love the life of David. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the folks will be trying to get you one. They're going to walk down and hand them out. Actually, we only got one back there. You're going to have to do it all by yourself. And help him. Look, he's exhausted. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And you can keep it if you don't own one. 2 Samuel chapter 16. And I'm going to put it into context before I have a stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Um, there we go. Good. All set? See, you didn't need anyone. You were like, I'm going to get that done. So we're going to have you do that next week. You're going to pass them out. No, just kidding. So in context, we've been studying the life of David as, as you've been doing this anchored reading. And David, um, he has a unique title that no one else in the Bible's ever been given. And it, it's a man after God's own heart. That's kind of a cool title. I would love to have my name in the Bible with that attached to it. Not going to happen. David got it. And I'm thinking, this has got to be a remarkable man. Well, as you read in this anchored reading this week, you realize he's an adulterer. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's a terrible father. He's a really good king, somewhat. And yet, God still calls him a man after his heart. And when I read Pastor Craig's grandfather's book, uh, Alan Redpath, and, and it's the studies in the life of David, the making of a man of God. I came to realize this title that was given to David, a man after God's own heart, I wasn't insulted that God gave it to him. I was encouraged. Um, a lot of you, I had one of the most humbling and also relieving moments in my life when I was struggling and I was in the pulpit and I thought, Lord, if this is what I'm dealing with, I can't imagine what the congregation's dealing with. And I was humbled because the Lord said, oh no, you're, you're the worst. They're, they're doing just fine. You're a train wreck. Okay, thanks so much. And you know how you get humility? Humiliation. I just thought I'd say that. But he, he, he made me realize, Rob, you're not in the pulpit because you're the most moral person in the room. I take the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. So when they look at you, they think, God can save that guy. He can do anything. And, and that's why he puts the weakest in the fishbowl. And I was moved by that because I looked at David's life and I said, you know, Lord, if you can use him, you can use me. And I learned something very profound about David. He understood the mercy of God. When we're honest with the Lord, he's merciful with us. And there's three types of sin. And again, Dr. Redpath said, the circle of sin is a circle of repentance. So if it's a secret sin between you and God, it's a secret repentance between you and the Lord. If it's a private sin, it's a private repentance between you and those you offended. And if it's a public sin, it's a public repentance. That's what happens with pastors. It, it takes more witnesses and we're given, yeah, there's, there's no accusation to be brought against us without two or three witnesses, but when that's established, the pastors face public repentance and consequences. And I thought, that's disqualifying. And I thought, does anyone recover from that? Because I looked at David's life and yet God still used him. As a matter of fact, when you get into Revelation, as we studied with Leah, his name is, Jesus' name is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And it comes through the lineage of David, son of David. It's Jesus' name. And you're like, wow. A liar, adulterer, murderer. But God cast our sin as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. He's in the business of restoration, but it comes with mercy. And you've got to face the consequences of your actions. 
and, and I was deeply ministered, and then God gave me um, a life illustration in a man I call in loco parentis. He's my father in the absence of my own. My dad went to be with the Lord. My mom's gone too. And it's Pastor Marty. Pastor Marty came into my life in his 70s. He was ordained late in his 70s, and then and he came out of Orthodox Judaism, converted to Christianity in, in his 60s, ordained in his 70s, and he's now in his 90s, approaching 100. And he waited until later in life before he, he got disqualified for ministry. And, and then he had to publicly repent. And we put him aside for a year and walked him through restoration. And he, he loved the mercy of God and he's still serving to this day. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, he drives around. Get out of the way when he's driving, but he, he drives around. <laughs> But he does all of our visitations, and he's a precious man. And he'll be the first to tell you he's got his issues, and yet God is merciful. And it's a reminder that, that God finishes what he started. Now, if you don't want your secret sin to become a private sin, and you don't want your private sin to become a public sin, don't think that because it's secret that God is condoning it. Uh, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance and, and don't think, let me continue in sin that grace would abound. Paul said that. Paul knew what it was like to sin because he said those things I don't want to do, I do those. Those things I, I want to do, I don't do those. Oh, wretched man that I am. And he understood the mercy of God. And he also knows, as all of us will come to realize God's kindness leads us to repentance. We don't continue in sin that grace might abound. The reason why God allows it to be secret and then private is because he's wanting you to repent. But he's more concerned with his reputation than he is with yours and mine. It, he'll, he'll reveal it and just say, you know, I tried. But you kept going. And your sin will find you out. It's, it, just, it just exposes itself. And he, he wants us all to come to that place where we're abiding in him. And we're all subject to that. There's sins that easily beset you. And, and God wants to give us victory. But oftentimes, when we get hurt by someone who fails, and all of us have. And as a matter of fact, not only have all of us been hurt by someone who failed, we've all hurt someone by our failure. And if you haven't, you're a liar. And you're hurting us. And you're prideful, which that was the first sin. I'm, I will be like the most high. We're, we're all a mess. Some of you go, I'm not a mess. Right there in that statement, you're a mess. Because you, you, you don't realize in the presence of God, you, you, listen, if you're saying I'm more moral than Rob McCoy, not a big bar <laughs> But I'm not the standard. God is. And what you think, you're guilty of. So, I mean, imagine us showing a videotape of your private thoughts. You'd be like, I gotta go. <laughs> it's okay. You're with people with the same thoughts. We're all sinners saved by grace. And God catches his fish before he cleans them. Okay? But we come to a place where we see David's life and, and he, he's made a mess of his family, committed adultery with Bathsheba. His greatest victory was Goliath and his greatest failure was Bathsheba. And then it, it was like a, a ripple effect in his family where Tamar and, and Absalom's brother, you know, there's incestual rape and, and the family's divided and there's, there's murder and Absalom's so angry at his father that he rebels against his dad when his dad's older and takes the kingdom and, and the entire nation is being affected because of a father and son's un, unreconciled bitterness towards each other. And that brings us to the passage. But we'll talk about David, but the name that jumps out at me, that moves me, is one that's really hard to pronounce. Ha 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 ha. Ahithophel or... In this case, Ahithophel. In the scriptures, New King James Version, Ahithophel. 
Ahithophel was an interesting dude. And you're going to learn about him because it's going to tie in with the life of David. And I believe God wants to do a big work in all of us, including myself, uh, today. So, 2 Samuel chapter 16, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We stand for the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. Don't, you'll, you'll hear me say it a thousand times, get used to it. <laughs> Teaching is done by repetition. I want that to echo in your head. Don't elevate a man. And don't say that, that any preacher brings the word of God to life. It is already living and breathing and sharpening two-edged sword. I, I'm just a mouthpiece, and God can do that with a dog or a Balaam's ass. He, he, you don't know what that is. You can read about it. It's not... <laughs> not that. Um, Yet we don't elevate man. Lord, may your spirit increase and may man decrease in Jesus' name. John 3.30. Verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom, this is the rebellion. Meanwhile, Absalom, David's son. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. And Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend, meaning his dad? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Now, they're picking sides. It's kind of like medical apartheid. Where do you stand? And the nation's divided. And that's what's happening in the kingdom. Are you Absalom or are you David? And he says, with that person I will remain. Verse 19, furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in your father's presence? So I will be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. I'll explain that momentarily. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, the palace, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Weird. Now the advice, here you go. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God, the mouth of God himself, so was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Cause us, Lord, please, to come alive to it. And Lord, we thank you for the way in which you take flawed human beings. You do not shy away from all of their scars and all of their issues, and yet even there, Lord, you work it together for good. And so, God, we trust you today. I pray you'd minister deeply. There's no work that man can do. This is of you, Holy Spirit. We invite you now that you would do a deep and abiding work and bring healing and blessing. And we trust you, Lord, and we yield our lives to you. We thank you for your presence in this place. Spirit of living God, fall afresh on us, please. Lead us into all truth. Minister to us deeply. Do what no man can do. We glorify you, we honor you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat if you would. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the mouth of God himself. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both to David and with Absalom. Every king needs counselors. Every president needs a cabinet. Through many advisors, your plans will succeed. You've got to get wise people around you. You start a business, you want to know people that know the industry. You want to ask the questions. You want prudence. You want wisdom. You want to navigate that. Otherwise, you're stupid. And you want to surround yourself with people who've already done it. You want, don't want to reinvent the wheel. And you seek people with wisdom. And Ahithophel was a, a Gileonite. He wasn't Jewish. He was a convert to Judaism. And he came in and assimilated not only to Judaism, but served the king of, of Judah, David, of Israel. And he served him faithfully into his later ages. He's a grandpa at this point. He's a grandpa. He'd been serving David for years. And when he served David, David so appreciated his counsel that every time he spoke, 
the wisdom by God's own admission was as though the mouth of God himself were speaking. I've met wise people like that. My wife's one of them. They say something. My daughter Molly, my daughter Kelly, they all have it. I don't. And they, they have this ability to tell you these things and you go, where did you come up with that? And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and, the, and the counsel of Ahithophel was unequaled in all of Israel. And he's the guy that would give this king who's struggling. And, and the reason why Absalom wanted him is because any donkey can knock down a barn door. Only a carpenter can build one. Rebels only know how to destroy. The secular progressive left only knows how to deconstruct. They tear apart 100-year-old institutions. And they find that loose thread and they, they, they come after and exploit historical wounds in the nation and tear apart every foundation we have. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we rebuild them. That's what we do. That's a lot of work. But a rebel only knows how to destroy. They don't know how to lead. So he gets into office, and here he is. He's rebelled against his father. His father's fleeing, and he doesn't know what to do. And he turns to Ahithophel. And Ahithophel's counsel is going to get him out of this mess. And Ahithophel's a brilliant man. And, and he doesn't care if it's David or Absalom. His wisdom is his wisdom, and it's good wisdom. And he decides to side with Absalom. And Absalom calls for his wisdom. He said, what do I do? And he said, first thing, go to David's household in the palace, get all of his concubines, violate them on the rooftop so everyone abhors and knows you abhor your father and his household. Tarnish that entire family. Let them know that you declare absolute justice upon them. Separate yourself by war. Hurt him. Absalom says, all right, I'm in. They build a tent on the roof, and he does exactly that. Then word gets to David about Ahithophel. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, a prayer. Like Pastor Fred prayed, David prayed. And this was David's prayer. O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Amen. That's a good prayer. <laughs> pray for kings and those in authority that we live quiet and peaceful lives. That's my prayer from now on. <laughs> Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And so he prays that. And the person we read about, Hushai, the archite, he's another counselor. He's another convert to Judaism. Hushai isn't as good of a counselor to the king as Ahithophel is. He's kind of second. And Hushai is loyal to David, and he goes to him and he says, David, Absalom has rebelled. Ahithophel has sided with your son. What do you want me to do? And David said, Hushai, I don't need you here. You need to get in the palace, and you have to thwart the counsel of that guy. I don't care what you do. Stop Absalom from listening to him, because if he listens to Ahithophel, I'm finished. He knows the Council of Hithphel is going to win that thing for Absalom. He's got the best campaign team imaginable. Hushai goes, stop that. Hushai shows up. He says, Absalom says, why are you here? He says, because I serve the son of the king, and the people want you. And then Ahithophel says, this is what we're going to do, because Absalom needs help. He's, he's a donkey. He's a rebel. He doesn't know how to lead. He just knows how to destroy. He knows how to tear apart, not build up. And he asks Ahithophel, what do I do? And Ahithophel says, here's what you do. Give me a handful of crack troops, just me. I got to leave tonight because you give David, you give him any time. He'll, he's wily. He'll find a hideout. He will, he will destroy you in time. You have to stop him right now. Give me a, a, a handful of crap, tr crap, crack troops. You try to do that. <laughs> and I'll kill him myself and you won't even have to have blood on your hands. I'll do it. And that's really good advice because David is exactly the guy Ahithophel knows him to be. And he goes, yeah. 
And he turns and he says, Hushai, what about you? Hushai turns to Absalom. He says, the advice that Ahithophel gives is not good. He says, really? He said, yes. It's not good advice. And it's fascinating because how do you thwart the counsel of Ahithophel? It's brilliant. Here's how you do it. What was the first sin in the Bible? You're like, oh, the apple. No. Lucifer, God's most beautiful angel, said, I will be like the most high. Pride. You know what pride is? Pride is ego. Evil has to reveal itself. Now, I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. I'm going to throw it out there. The Speaker of the House in the last presidential election said this before the election. There is no scenario in which the president will be reelected. I thought to myself, that is a bold statement. No scenario. That's gutsy. And they were right. It didn't matter. Nobody's winning. Even if you broke the record for the most votes ever obtained and your candidate was in a bunker. You, you were right. So when the campaign manager for our governor said two days before the election, a week and two days before the election, there's no scenario in which the governor will be recalled. I thought, I've heard that before. I don't know what you think about how it went down. But that's a bold statement. They either had inside information or they were just arrogant. I have my opinion. <laughs> but evil has to telegraph itself. It wants credit. That's why, that's why serial killers always leave clues. They need to be known. Look what I did. I did that. <laughs> Creepy. Pride always has to reveal itself. They telegraph. And so... Hushai the archite said, I know how I can get Absalom. He's a rebel and he loves himself. And he says, good king. Oh. He says, good king, the advice of Hushai, this is 2 Samuel 17, 14. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed Hear me out. Remember David's prayer? Lord, make Ahithophel's counsel foolish. For the Lord had purpose to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. It doesn't matter what Ahithophel says, God's going to thwart it. And, and Hushai says, Absalom, you don't want to send crack troops out to go Get David. What you want is you want to gather the armies of Israel. You want to ride in the front of them on this steed of a horse. And you want them to be moved with your hair flowing and the sun shining. You're like a Fabio. Do you see it? I see it. <laughs> oh, yes, I see that. Yes. <sighs> and they'll be singing more of you, less of everyone else. Yes, I feel this. And he says, I am going to take the counsel of Hushai. Because he appeals to his pride. Ego. There's only one place for ego in the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I, ego, have been crucified with Christ. No longer I, ego, who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. But Absalom is alive and well, and so is his ego. He takes the counsel of Hushai the archite, and he buys David time. And this is what happens with Ahithophel. Interesting man. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey, arose, and went home to his house, to his city. And then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. He was buried in his father's tomb. I'm sorry to upset the little one. I was a sheriff's chaplain right here on a call in Dos Fientos. Never forget. I came into the house. It was a suicide. The man had shot himself with a 38 revolver. His wife and his daughter were the ones I was ministering to. He left a mess that I was called to clean up. 
not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. He did it for the insurance money, and he laid out all the bills. He had the checks written and his signature on them. And his wife said, this is so stupid. I'd rather be penniless and have him here. What was he thinking? Sometimes people commit suicide because of the medications that have been thrust upon us by big pharma. Some of us have lost loved ones that weren't in their right mind because these drugs just mess with us. They even put it on the box. may cause suicidal thoughts. Then why are you selling it? may cause death. Do we need to go any further? And every commercials, a pharma commercial, bloating, may cause rash, may cause pimples, may cause bloody stools. You're like, and they're just listing them off. Oh, I got to call my doctor and get that because they're just dancing in the movie and they're just so happy. We're all guinea pigs. Just, yeah. No, we're just sheep. Some of your doctors going, I can make good money on that. Get another job. All right. So this, this man, his counsel's thwarted, and he goes and he hangs himself. Why? Who is this guy, and why would he do that? I mean, let's think about this. David prayed, Lord, thwart the counsel of Ahithophel and make it foolishness. And God answered the prayer, and he purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster upon Absalom. Absalom knows wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when he spoke, it was like the mouth of God himself were speaking. It was good counsel. It was wise counsel. And just to stop Absalom, God kills a man that all he ever did was give good counsel. And he listened to David. Who's David? A murderer. First of all, an adulterer. He didn't have an affair. Affairs are fun to dress up for. You know, you, you go to a black tie, that's an affair. It's called adultery. And he commits adultery with another man's wife, which is the definition. And then she's pregnant. So he tries to hide his sin. His secret sin now is private and he doesn't want it to be public. So he's going to take out all the witnesses. So he sends the woman's husband. Bathsheba is the woman. Her husband is Uriah the Hittite. Sends Uriah to the front lines. Pulls the forces back and puts a hit on him. He killed him. He murdered him. He didn't pull the trigger. He called the order to have him killed. And then he lied about it. And Nathan confronted him and told a story about a man that had big flocks of sheep. And then this one poor guy had a little lamb that the family loved. And it was it. And the guy took it from him. And he goes, have that man killed. He should be punished. And Nathan looks at David and he goes, you're that man. You could have had any woman in the kingdom and you took her. Uriah's wife. And that man loved you and served you and you murdered him. And now he's got an octogenarian counselor who has given him wise counsel, and his son rebels because he was a terrible father. He allowed Tamar to be raped. He allowed all that mess to happen in his family. He was a good king, terrible father, and his personal life was a train wreck. And God still calls him a man after his own heart. What are you doing, God? You got the wrong guy. Seriously, what, what, what did, read the scriptures. There's nothing Ahithophel did wrong. And God towards his counsel. What makes David so special? To the point where he knows that this entire rebellion is done because Absalom doesn't know what to do. And, and it's all going to fall apart. And he says, I might as well expedite it and takes his life. And sometimes you struggle thinking, Lord, you got the wrong guy hung himself. Who is Ahithophel? There's got to be something evil in his life. Why would God purpose to destroy his counsel and ruin his life? Why wouldn't he take David out? Why wouldn't he let Absalom? He's the one who, who hurt Absalom. He never even disciplined Absalom. Absalom stood for his own sister when David wouldn't.
Why would God give him a title, a man after his own heart? Who is Ahithophel? This is David's mighty men. There's 37 of them. They all got the Medal of Honor for serving David. Ahithophel had a son. Eliphelet, the son of Ahashahaba, the son of Mahahahai. <laughs> Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. His son was one of David's mighty men. He raised a family that defended David's life. And that guy gets thwarted. He converted to David's religion, served in his palace. When he spoke, because he was so highly regarded and educated, it was just as though the mouth of God himself were speaking. He knew the train wreck in the family. He stood with Absalom. He made a decision. God thwarts his counsel, and he's dead. And God purposed to thwart the counsel of Israel and answered the prayers of a murderer, an adulterer, and a liar. And did it at the expense of a man who raised one of David's Medal of Honor winners. Oh, it gets better. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. So David sent and inquired about the woman, Bathsheba, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Wait a minute. God answered David's prayers when he violated Ahithophel's granddaughter and murdered his grandson-in-law. Okay, now I got issue. I did before. I really do now. What? Jesus is the son of David? The lion of the tribe of Judah that both the, the, the female lineage and the male lineage, the mother and the father, Matthew and Luke, have to go through the line of David? A man after God's own heart? David violated his granddaughter and murdered his grandson-in-law. And God thwarted Ahithophel's prayer. Anyone troubled with this? Why? Well, when you read what Ahithophel wanted to do, it almost seemed calculated. Violate everything he loves in public. And then let me put the knife in his chest. Let me stick him with it. I'll kill him. And let's do it tonight. And Hushai comes on. And ego takes over. And Ahithophel looks at Absalom and goes, you're an idiot. It's over. I've worked my whole life for this. There's nothing worth living for. And he kills himself. Why is this so serious? Interesting. I want to read to you a story. It's not mine. It's the Lord's. I'll finish on time. We had to apply this with Pastor Marty. People have had to apply it to me. I've had to apply it to others. Sometimes it's been successful and other times it hasn't. It's called church discipline. We stand by it. We don't tolerate gossip. Gossip is just a lie with legs on it. Somebody said, I don't, I don't, I don't play that way. Who said? Let me talk to them. I want to know the source. All of a sudden, everyone shuts up. Gossip doesn't survive in the sunlight. It's like a fungus. You go right to the source and you deal with it and you reconcile. Matthew 18, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, privately. If he hears you, you have won, gained your brother. You don't go to win the debate. You don't go to 
browbeat them. You don't go to show that you're morally superior. You go to win them. You go to gain their relationship back. That's the motivation and why you do it. You don't go to show yourself morally superior. Nobody is. Some of you go, I'm more moral than you are. Not a, not a real high bar. Good for you. Problem is, I'm not the standard. Good luck with that. God's a standard. And to the level you judge, you will be judged. You want that? You want mercy or judgment? I'll leave that with you. If he will not hear you, take with you one or two more that may by the mouth of two or three witnesses, not hearsay, witnesses, I saw this, and every word may be established, may be proven true. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the, hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. I'll do business with you, but you're not family. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Ropes bind you, enslave you, imprison you. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. God wants us in community for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We're really good at dividing. We're not good at building community. And then Jesus illustrates this with a parable. Parable means parabolos, parable line, uh, parallel lines alongside each other. And Jesus tells an earthly illustration to put forward a heavenly truth. Uh, the term for the Holy Spirit is paraclete, the one who comes alongside as the comforter. That's parallel lines. He tells this parable to let them understand what he just said about reconciliation and winning a brother. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And he was taking a rabbinical teaching and added some numbers to it, thinking, hey, I'm way above the mark. And the Lord said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times seven, or 70 times seven. You're like 144. Okay, so I get to kill him after that? God is saying, and that's just for each offense. Just keep it going. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A, talents. a talent is a year's wages. He owed him 10,000 years of wages. I don't know what you make, but let's just take the average salary, probably, I don't, I don't know what it is, 75,000, which is worthless in California. What did you make last year? Send it in. That's the California tax form. He owed this man 10,000 years of wages. It's a big debt. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and the payment be made into debtor's prison. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. He promised something he couldn't do. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. First of all, when do you forgive someone? When you're moved by God to do so. And how do you know? Because it's going to cost you something. You say, you know, the government should help people in Uganda. You know, that's really not compassion. That's you taking someone else's money to virtue signal. You're so generous with other people's money. Compassion costs you and me something. It, you you got to fork it out. You want to help? It comes out of your pocket. It costs you something. He had to forgive 10,000 years of wages. And you go, well, he could afford it. All right. Why do you keep asking? I'm having this conversation that you're having in my head. <laughs> they got enough money. Yeah, and it's not yours. Yeah, but they have more than they need. They should give it to me. No, they shouldn't. Covetousness is a violation of the Decalogue. So is stealing. 
your, your embracement of socialism in the pulpits of America is a violation of God's moral law. You know why they have more money? The greater the risk, the greater the reward. Nobody put a gun to your head to buy that smartphone. And you bought it. You can't wait for the next one to go out. You buy that one. And you go, well, they should give me some of that money. Why? You didn't, you didn't, why don't you create something that is a benefit to others and then they'll buy it? That's how you create wealth, benefiting someone else with something they need. But you're in your basement playing video games and you're expecting mom and dad to write you a check. Sorry. You, you aren't a provider or a protector. You're just enabled and you're lazy. And, and I know that's insulting, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. I, I want you to, to come out of your basement and get some sunshine and, and be a man and, and, and start front-loading your life and preparing to take care of kids as you're going to take care of your wife and sacrifice and start to educate yourself and get some wisdom and get into the word of God and quit waiting for the handout and somebody doesn't owe you anything. Nobody owes you a dime. Not one single penny. You're accountable to God. You have work to do. And that's how it works in the kingdom of God. Now, if you want to have compassion, it's not going to be with your parents' money. It's got to cost you something. And it cost this man 10,000 years of wages. Almost finished. I was a young boy throwing a ball against the wall. The neighbor's house in Coronado. The man had more money than the Pope has appointments. He was really rich, Mr. Gillard. I broke the window. First time I had broken it, but apparently it had been broken three times. I ran in the house and hid. He comes and knocks on the door. My father is a starving commander in the United States Navy. He says, Commander, I know I can repair that window. I can pay for it. I got the money to do it, but I'm tired of doing it, and these kids are getting away with it, and your son has to, he broke it. He has to pay for that. My dad said, Mr. Gillard, he does, and he has to be responsible for it. But I can tell you right now, he doesn't have the money to do that. I'll pay for the window, but I'll make sure then I get the wages back from him. Mr. Gillard said, fair enough deal. My dad paid a debt I couldn't pay and made me work it off. My dad wasn't a believer, but he understood the principle. There's consequences to your actions, and somebody has to pay for the window. Well, he has enough money, he should pay for it. No, you broke it. Yeah, but I don't have the money. You're tracking the parable. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold. And then he cried and he said, please, I'll pay you everything I owe you. And he was willing to do it. And then the master had compassion on him. He paid the debt and let him go back to being a father and a, a husband and a father and forgave him the debt. Forgave it. He, he, he ate it. 10,000 years of wages. He ate it. Here we go. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. 100 denarii is like a day's wage. He owed him 100 days wages. Next to nothing. He laid hands on him, which he, he was physically in an altercation with the guy who owed him money. He puts his hands on his throat. He's shaking him, saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Repeated the words he said to the guy that he owed 10,000 years wages to. And you're thinking, this guy's going to get it and go, you know what? I just was forgiven. My bad. I'm sorry. I don't realize what I'm doing. No, he didn't do that. He was strangling him and he said he would not, but when he went, he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, these are observers of the body of Christ in the community. When they saw what had been done to the fellow servant, they were grieved and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, and this is the first time he says it. It's the first time he says it. He called him wicked. He never called him wicked when he owed him 10,000 years wages. Here's when he calls him wicked. The master, after he called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. And then, so my heavenly father, Jesus says, will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Just let the words of the Lord minister to you. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The only thing God doesn't tolerate in the lives of his kids 
is unforgiveness. I, I had a precious talk with a friend yesterday. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. Forgiveness is putting the consequences of that person's actions in the hands of the Lord so you can go on with your life. You don't lay awake wanting revenge. They had processed it so well and it handled it so profoundly. I was touched by it. They sought to be reconciled, but the person was just bitter. And they were living in their own prison. But they went on with their life to realize, I don't need to live there. When you're unforgiving, you live in a prison you create while you wait for the person you hate to die. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. But remember that heaven is filled with those who have this in common. They are forgiven and they forgive. Holding a grudge is like letting someone live rent-free in your head. They own you. And this is precious, and I don't know who said it, but people in general would rather die than forgive. It's that hard. If you said in plain language, I'm giving you a choice, forgive or die, a lot of people would go ahead and order their coffin. I close with this. I close with this. It takes you a nanosecond on a day like this to go back to that place where you were hurt. And the room's filled with victims. And I don't, I don't belittle your pain or compete with it. I just acknowledge it. And, it, and in a flash, you're back there. You just see it all. And then chest gets tight and palms are sweaty. Heart's racing. Anger's building up and they've taken from you. You know why David was a man after God's own heart? He knew the power of mercy. It says in Matthew, blessed, oh, how happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You have to give it to get it. David had received it and he extended it. He was a man with a lot of sin, but he knew God was merciful. And when we're honest with the Lord, he's merciful with us. And he owned his sin, when you're confronted with your sin, you can do one of three things. Blame others. Do you know what happened to me as a child? No. But it doesn't matter. The victim doesn't become the victimizer. You're not justified. I don't, your excuse is irrelevant. You can't blame others. Number one, you can blame others. No, that's what you can do when you're confronted with sin. Blame others or make excuses. I, 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 I drink because I'm Irish. No, you drink because you're a drunk. And, and I, I'm not casting stones. Everything I say to you comes back. They're, they're, I, I've already told you that. We're all in the same boat. We're just beggars showing other beggars where the food is. I, I'm not condemning you. All of us have to take inventory. We're on a broken planet with messed up people who have all sinned and been sinned against. And God wants to restore and make a family where we're reconciled to one another. So you, you can't blame others, you can't make excuses. The third is just repent. You're doing this and it's wrong. Just turn and see the cross where Christ died and paid 10,000 years of wages, a debt you could never pay in multiple lifetimes, a sin he didn't commit to set you free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And the ground at the foot of the cross is level and he calls you there to a place of forgiveness and he said in his final words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He forgave you when you were his enemy and then finally he said which was compassion at its fullest extent because it cost him his life. He said, it is finished, paid in full to Telestai. And that's you and me. I'm gonna have the worship team come up. God, God wants you to leave it here today. God wants to loose the bounds those things that bind you, and he wants you to be free. He wants you to live and not be in bitterness, not be imprisoned. You need to let it go. 
God is here today to set you free. It's finished. It's paid for for you. Now it's time to do it for them. You, you, you hold it captive when it comes back and just give it to the Lord and move on. And I'll close with this as the worship team begins. I love this story about my mom. Folks who've attended for a while are going, this is story number 119. The person next to him goes, oh yeah, 119, I like that one. <laughs> for those of you who are new, it's the first time you've heard it. And I'm gonna tell it a thousand times before I die at 170. Michelle had almost died after her first pregnancy. I almost lost my wife. And we had two girls and then another miscarriage. And then we were thinking, we're done with kids because it's scary. And I'm having my morning devotion and I'm in Psalm 128, I think it was. It was an NIV version, nearly inspired. And I, I um, I'm kidding. The best version of the Bible is the one you read. Um, so, so it says, your sons will be as olive shoots around your table. I'm like, olive shoots? I'm gonna have sons? And I, I, I don't know how God speaks to you. I know how he speaks to me. And I can count it on one hand, but that morning, God said, you're going to have kids. I went in, I woke Michelle up. I go, honey, look at the passage, we're going to have sons. She goes, no, we're not. Go back to bed. (laughs) About a week later, she comes in, she holds up the pregnancy stick. (laughs) I can do something right. (laughs) The baby's due in April. So at Christmas, we went and did the ultrasound. We didn't want to know the sex of the baby. We put it in the envelope. And Michelle and I prayed separately. And we said, let's ask the Lord for a name. And we'll open it at Christmas. And we both prayed for a name. And then separately, we put it in an envelope, sealed it. And at Christmas time, at her parents' house, we opened up the envelope. It was a boy. And we both picked the name Daniel. I called my mother, who wasn't quite a believer at that point, to tell her. And my mother, at that point, could be a real biatch. It's a translation of... (laughs) And I go, I go, mom, because I, I, I wanted to show her the, the joy of the Lord and all that, just so she could, I go, we prayed, and then the baby, and then the money, and, and the Lord, and then it was Daniel. And she's like, I, I kid you not, she said, no grandchild of mine will be named Daniel, and she hung up. I'm like, now that's like, she was bad, but that was really bad. I call her back, I go, whoa, you can't do that, explain. She says, what's your grandfather's name, my grand, my, my father? I go, I didn't know you had one. She goes, I did. His name was Daniel Frank McKee, and he was the most awful man that ever lived. And no grandchild of mine will ever be named Daniel. I go, Mom, I'm sorry for your pain. (laughs) But God said Daniel. She hung up again. Daniel was born, and of all the grandkids... She had a special connection to him, and I'll never forget when she held him in his arms for the first time, held, held him in her arms for the first time. She kept saying the name Daniel over and over again. It was cathartic. She, she came to terms with the Lord and let go of the pain of her dad. She walks with the Lord now. She hears this. She knows. My dad's there, too. He's going, good. Yeah, God has a way of making it work together for good. If you didn't get that lesson, she can come down and tell you. The Lord will make her peer. You don't want that. <laughs> I'm going to have the, while we worship, the, the prayer team's going to be up here. Let, let's just leave it at the altar. The altar's called a slaughter place. It's where you come to the things that need to die. This needs to die. You come up and, and just give it to the Lord. Leave it here and go home. You're free. But they'll be here to pray with you. Take advantage of it. Let's stand and worship with the Lord.